Welcome to the Therapeutic Food Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Marion Mitchell. I'm an integrative nutrition health coach, therapeutic diet expert, and founder of The Road to Living Whole. There are many different diets out there. It's hard to know which one is right for you with your chronic illness and autoimmune disease. In this podcast, I'm going to share with you the foundational pieces every single therapeutic diet out there shares, and also how to use the best one for your particular diagnosis. If you've been looking for a meal planning partner, help navigating the complicated healthcare system, and want to feel better quickly, I'm your girl. Grab your kombucha and notebook. Let's dive in. I have a very special guest for you today. Joining me is Dr. Mary Kay Geyer. Not only is she an incredible doctor, but she's also a wonderful human being and friend. Dr. Geyer and I have worked together since 2019. I have learned so much working with her and she's just an incredible resource. I am thrilled to be able to introduce you all to her. Dr. Geyer, please share with our listeners who you are, where you're located and your specialty. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm super excited. This is my my second podcast uh, interview ever. So it's nice to be on and and kind of conquer those fears. Uh, And this is something that we're both really passionate about. So I'm excited to talk about it. Um, For the listeners that don't know who I am, um, I'm in North Scottsdale. So Scottsdale, Arizona, and I have a private practice there. And it's an integrative medical practice. I uh, integrate the best of conventional and alternative therapies for a lot of these chronic complex cases. So a lot of patients travel from states and out of the country all over and locally um, for cases that can't be, they're having difficulty, they're really sick. Uh, nobody's really figured out what's going on with them or they haven't made headway. So that's my practice. And that's kind of my, my passion is to help those who have those more complicated cases that people haven't been able to get to the bottom of. Yeah. And Dr. Geyer is actually the one who really showed me the value of testing. And if you've been following my podcast, you know that I'm a big fan of testing. And Dr. Geyer is the reason why, because we work with these really sick people who have gone to so many doctors and can't figure it out. And she just runs all these tests and she's able to really kind of layer in what is going on and really just help them get better. I've seen some incredible things. Today's topic specifically is one that is not really well understood, um, and it's uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. It's also known as SIBO, and we're going to be diving really deep into this today. We are a really well-oiled machine when it comes to helping people treat SIBO properly and prevent reoccurrence. There are so many people out there being treated incorrectly, and it's really beyond frustrating. So we really want to empower you with the correct information. And that's what the goal is for today's interview. So Dr. Geyer, first, can you share with us what are some of the common symptoms of SIBO? SIBO is small intestine bacterial overgrowth, and there's some some overlap um, with SIBO and there's something called CIFO, which is small intestine fungal overgrowth. And there's also large intestine. So a lot of people think, oh, I have gut symptoms and they latch onto one thing or another thing with their gut symptoms. And it's sometimes easier to think about the upper GI and the lower GI. So when I'm talking to patients, what I'm looking at, I'm kind of separating those is 
Um, are they having things like burping, reflux, indigestion? Are they having pain directly after eating? Because that's in the small intestine. So you eat, you swallow it, it's going through your stomach and your small intestine. It's going to take about two hours to transition through those. So I'm looking at those symptoms of like bloating, gas pain, um, running for the bathroom, you know, could be constipation or diarrhea, which may not be in those two hours or maybe. So those upper GI symptoms. The other nuance of it is that we're also looking at something called the vagal nerve or the vagus nerve, because um, it's it, there's a lot of nuances of the vagus nerve, uh, but that has to do with people's immune systems. Uh, it has to do with their chest and heart. It also has to do with their gut. And so when we're talking about those innervations, sometimes people have symptoms that don't fit traditional gut symptoms. And I've had those patients that just had chest pain or palpitations or anxiety, and they've done cardiac workups and the cardiologist is like, nope, it's not your heart. And so I'm looking at, at that ner those nerves and that biofeedback that it may actually be a gut symptom. And so sometimes it isn't those traditional upper GI symptoms. Lower GI symptoms are a little bit different. And so those could be constipation, diarrhea, or alternating as well, and there can be bloating and gas pain. Uh, however, there isn't usually that onset within, you know, some people will say, I drink water and I get symptoms immediately. And it's like, well, that's not, it hasn't hit your lower GI yet. Um, and uh, the things like reflux, I mean, that's coming from your small intestine and your stomach into your esophagus. So we're working our way up. So some of that is just geographically, the literally the upper GI and relative to when they eat. Um, another nuance of SIBO, if it's textbook, which not everybody comes to me really textbook. Uh, however, you know, when we like those textbook descriptions, it's really nice is that people will say, well, I wake up with a flat belly and by the end of the day, I feel like I'm pregnant and this is men and women, um, or, um, I'm waking up in the middle of the night and I have to run for the bathroom. And so that can be upper and lower GI. And so a lot of people will come in with IBS, you know, that garbage can catch all like I have irritable bowel syndrome. And it's like, okay, they couldn't figure out what you had and um, you have bowel symptoms. So that's what irritable, irritable bowel syndrome ends up kind of being for a lot of people, unfortunately. Awesome. Yeah, no, it's, um, I feel like when we look for those textbook ones, that's when things get missed. So I guess my next question is you're doing this evaluation and you're looking at the upper and the lower GI and you're looking at the symptoms and you're looking at anxiety and heart and all this stuff. And let's say you suspect that it's SIBO. How do you test for it? And why should you test versus relying on symptoms to diagnose? I think it's a real disservice. And I know that a lot of people won't agree with me on this. And I want to clarify why and be really clear on that. I think it's a real disservice to treat things empirically when we have really good testing, um, because then we know exactly what we're testing and we can be very methodical about it. And then we also know if we're making headway with treatment. So um, if I'm suspecting SIBO with someone, I'm going to do a SIBO breath test. Um, and SIBO breath tests are testing for different gases. Most of the time now, I'm also going to do a stool test. And so if you asked me this five years ago or 10 years ago or 16 years ago, when I was starting to treat SIBO, I may have had a different answer. And I would like to go back and slap myself if I had a different answer, um, because I think, you know, we really have to, we have to know what we're treating. We have to approach it in a methodical way. Um, we need to be able to see gains together and see that it's working. And if it's not working, we need to change the treatment. And so um, unfortunately, a lot of people who have SIBO can't tell when they're getting better because their gut is damaged. 
And so I'll talk to other doctors and they'll say, oh, well, my patient's not getting better. And I'm like, okay, well, what were their beginning numbers? They're like, I didn't, I don't know. I didn't test. And so we don't even know that they had SIBO. Um, and I've had two patients I can think of, if you don't mind me going on a little bit of a tangent. Go right ahead. Um, friends. And um, they both came into me and they're like, we have the same thing. We have the same GI symptoms. And um, we know we both have SIBO. We've both seen the same GI doctor. We've been through all these rounds of antibiotics. Nothing's getting better. And I tested one and she had SIBO and I tested the other and she had parasites. And so that's why we test. <laughs> Otherwise I would have been treating SIBO the whole time empirically for this other patient when she had parasites. That's, that's such a great example. Um, I get referred people who, um, you know, take their antibiotics and then, oh, they feel better. So start the diet. And then like a week later, they're feeling horrible again. And I was like, well, did your doctor retest to make sure it was gone? And they were like, no, they just had to move on to diet. And I'm like, well, how do they know that it even worked? Like how many points did you drop? Like how high was it when you started? And they're like, oh, I don't know. And I'm like, okay, like, and you know, and this comes from working with you all this time. And I'm like, well, how can, like, if it, if you, if this is your fifth time with SIBO, like how do you know you're even like taking the right treatment? Like if they're just throwing the same expensive antibiotics at it again and again, and you're spending, you know, a thousand to 3000 per treatment, like what are you doing? And it's a really simple test and it's pretty affordable. Like it's not astronomical. It is, it really is. And the other piece I think people don't see. And so I think that this is really important is that when my patients come into me, um, we are creating a partnership. And so I am walking through every single line of their labs and making sure they are engaged, they understand, they know what's going on. And by the time we're doing follow-up treatment or retesting, a lot of my patients are like, I already looked at my test and I can see that it worked. And I see that I, it has this many points left. And I'm like, freaking great. Like this person knows how to read a SIBO test better than like 75% of the doctors I mentor in SIBO who, you know, haven't learned that yet. I'm like, that's, that's incredible. And that's what I want to see. Um, the other piece about SIBO testing. So if you don't mind me just kind of jumping in here is that for anybody who doesn't know what a breath test does, it's going to test gases. And so you take it, you know, there's a prep diet very specifically, there's a 12 hour fasting, um, it, beforehand, and then someone collects their breath every 20 minutes for two hours. And there are two hour and three hour. That's a whole other topic. Um, I do the two hour test. Um, and before they begin the test, they take their baseline of their fasting. They drink a lactulose drink, which is going to feed the SIBO. And then that every 20 minutes, we're actually going to track the lactulose as it goes through the small intestine and gases are released in response to the bacteria eating the sugar. Um, cause that's what SIBO does. It eats sugar and it produces gas. And so we track that and then we get numbers from that. And it's either a methane gas producer or a hydrogen gas producer or both. And that changes the way that we treat. So we can track those numbers of if they have 147 combined, I know treatment is gonna be longer and we're gonna to have to be a lot more targeted um, than if it's you know, really at like 30 um, or we're looking at 40, which is vastly different than um, 147. Somebody the other day, it didn't read off the chart. It was literally off the chart. Um, for their methane levels. And I was like, oh, 
I've never seen literally over that number where they don't even measure anymore. So that, that should be treated a whole lot differently. And that's where the empirical treatments really get messed up. Thank you so much for sharing those stories. Um, one of the things that I really wanted to dive into were some of the myths around SIBO that you would like to bust. Like what are some ones that you wish people who are suffering from SIBO knew would not work or could make it worse? Um, one big myth is the reinfection myth. I think this is the number one I, I hear all the time is people come in and they say, I've been fighting SIBO for five years and I keep getting reinfected. And what I find is that they aren't reinfected. It was just never treated effectively. So people don't necessarily, again, understand SIBO. Like there are bacteria and there's actually something called archaea. That's what releases methane, even though we often call it bacteria. These bacteria release gases, right? Um, and they overgrow. And the reasons that they overgrow oftentimes are things like you're gonna get infected either from um, getting food poisoning and you're infected by your food um, or constipation because certain bacteria belong in the large intestine and should not be in the small intestine. So did they actually get cure or were they reinfected? That's something that I tease apart. Or the other thing is that it just was never properly treated. So they should have those gases gone on treatment. And then we have to move into repair stages because those bacteria are going to damage the intestinal lining they're gonna damage the nerves, um, they're gonna damage the MMC. So they damage these things that help our intestines move along, our absorption, these, most of these people have malabsorption. And if they're just getting antibiotics and being sent on their way, even if it was gone um, then, and they still have constipation, yeah, maybe they are being reinfected or maybe they were never retested and it just grew back. It was low enough that they didn't have symptoms. That's why we don't just use symptoms, we have to use both. That's my, I would say my number one myth. Um, other myths would be treating for SIBO without testing. So, oh, you can, you can totally treat if you have gas and bloating. And it's like, okay, well, you can take antibiotics all day long, but if you have a fungal infection, then that's not going to help. It's actually going to make it worse. Um, or um, parasites, right? Like that patient who's like, had already been through several rounds of rifaximine. Why, why on earth were they given rifaximine? Maybe, you know, I, I understand somewhat where my counterparts are coming from when they do that. They just want to give their patients some symptom relief. And there are some good studies on symptom relief uh, on IBS in general, without knowing the cause. Uh, but for that person with parasites, that didn't change the fact that they had parasites. It also doesn't change the fact that they probably infected their whole family with parasites at that point. So that, that is another piece that comes up a lot. Some people carry a bias towards a certain recommendation versus another. So this, there are some innate biases out there. And so they'll say, as an example, uh, FODMAP is one of my favorites. <laughs> FODMAP, I, would, I have to call out FODMAP here. Um, I love a good FODMAP diet. It's very useful strategically, like all diets that are meant to be temporary are, um, but I actually have another patient story to talk about with this, where we treated her SIBO. Um, I think it was up at like 147 combined. She was very, very sick. We ended up doing elemental. Her symptoms went away. She never came back in because she was feeling better. And so she continued to do FODMAP for years. And I never told her to do FODMAP. She just didn't follow up with me. And she got on some SIBO groups and she got you know, Dr. Google, um, SIBO Facebook group, 
medical advice. And by the time she came back, her SIBO had completely regrown. It had been a couple of years, maybe three or so. Um, and we retested her. And so I'm like, FODMAP doesn't kill SIBO. And so that was what she was told in the group is that FODMAP would kill SIBO. And I'm like, no, 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 no. FODMAP just keeps it at bay. It gives it just enough calories to keep going with low FODMAP foods that will cause less gas and bloating, but won't starve it out. It's not enough and it won't kill it like antibiotics and herbs do, which are the two approaches. So um, it didn't go away. It actually grew back on this very restrictive diet she'd had herself on for several years. Then when she came back, she wanted to do elemental again, and we did, except it didn't work because she'd already had it on such a low FODMAP diet for the last three years that she couldn't starve it out anymore. It had already figured out a way to live through the FODMAP diet. And so it was resistant. And now we're at this fun little place where we actually have to trick it and we're alternating antibiotics and herbs, which is like kind of next level treatment approaches, which I don't always do. It's more in those really resistant cases. And so that's one where I'm like, okay, I love that there are support groups. I love that people give each other advice. Um, I love that sometimes that advice honestly is better than what they're getting from some other doctors, which stinks that that's the world we live in. Um, however, that is like just an absolute myth is that you're going to starve your SIBO out and cure it with a FODMAP diet. It's not going to happen. It's just absolutely not. So those are a few that I can think of off the top of my head that are big ones. Um, or, oh, I have to do one more. <laughs> the other one is that... Um, that SIBO is not the cause and that uh, there's an underlying condition that's causing it. So you have to get to the root source. Now I am all about root source medicine is literally my practice. However, most people come in and it's literally like you and I've had this conversation where it's like going in my jewelry box and I'm like teasing apart like this just mess of necklaces or like more recently, it's all of my um, earbuds, <laughs> my wired earbuds where I'm like, oh, this one goes to my computer and this one goes. So that's what happens with people's health when they come into me is that uh, like we're teasing it apart. It's like, okay, well, maybe it is SIBO and maybe they do have mold um, and maybe they also have mast cell activation and which one comes first. And sometimes um, we have to look at the numbers to figure that out. And sometimes we have to figure out how we best fix that. Um, sometimes it is just SIBO. I swear, sometimes it's just SIBO. These people don't have mold. I mean, it doesn't, they might have some genetics that predispose them. We might have um, an MTHFR where they're more likely to get infections, but not everybody has heavy metals in this and that and the other thing. And I think some doctors will approach, you know, it's kind of like a hammer approach. Like when you're a hammer, everything's a nail. And so I get a lot of those patients too, where they're like, well, this doctor told me we had to treat mold first. And this doctor told me, and then we ran all the tests. I just did this recently on a patient actually. Um, and we ran mold and we ran heavy metals and we ran all the things that she really, she had exposures. Um, these were all things that we needed to do, but ultimately her SIBO numbers were through the roof. And it's like, should I treat this, that, and the other thing? And I'm like, well, first of all, according to your tests, your mold is coming from your food. You didn't have a sick building and you don't necessarily have that. And your mast cell um, integrity, so mast cells release histamine and people will start having lots of allergy type reactions to either foods, sometimes their environment, when it's extreme enough, they can have um, reactions to everything. Um, that mast cell is an outcome. It's not a cause. And so that's where people get a little bit confused. It's like, okay, well, if I don't treat that SIBO first, we're not doing anything with your mast cells. 
And um, yes, we can absolutely take your moldy foods out right now and we can add in fats and we can add in binders and we can do these things simultaneously, but that's not the cause of your SIBO. Um, now, in some people it might be. And so that's where we put the numbers together and the timeline together. We figure out what the best approach is. Those are more complicated, but for some people, it is just SIBO, I swear. Not everyone has all the other things. You talked about all my favorite ones, especially FODMAPs. <laughs> I was like, I really, I'm like, if she doesn't bring this up, I'm going to ask. <laughs> and that's actually going to be my next episode where I'm going to actually tease that apart for people. So oh, yes, I'm going to talk about FODMAPs and what its uses are. And I'm going to talk about specific carbohydrate diet. I'm going to go into our, your protocol in our yes. next episode. So I'm going to be diving into this next. Awesome. But those are my four favorite. Um, and those were the, are the ones that I see being the most harmful to people. So you talked a little bit about treatments for SIBO. Can you just maybe just a superficial rundown of like your, the, the three pro, uh, protocols out there that are truly effective treatments and maybe some of their uses, just a quick rundown. So the way that I break it down for my patients is I explain that there's two treatment strategies. And so these need to be kept separate because a lot of people blur them um, and they need to be kept separate because they're two different approaches. One is to kill the SIBO. And the other one is to starve it out. Now, yes, it's going to die by starving out, but like one is to kill it off with something. One is to starve it out. So we're going to feed it and kill it, or we're going to starve it, feed it and kill it or starve it Two literally opposite approaches. Um, so by killing it, we're usually looking at antibiotics or herbs, which we often call herbal antibiotics, just so the public understands, although it's kind of a misnomer um, of that. So we use that, we use um, antibiotics and herbs and the studies have shown that they're equally as effective, although clinically I have not found that to be the case. Um, I generally find that herbs take longer. However, that doesn't mean it's right or wrong approach because it really depends on somebody's SIBO. And then to starve it out is something called the elemental diet. And so there are lots of them out there. I use Physicians Elemental, elemental um, it's by ITI and it's a dextrose-free formula. And so when we do that, we are literally starving it. And so there's a lot of misunderstandings about this where people are like, oh, well, I'll have the elemental and then I can also eat. No, no, you can't eat. That's it. The elemental diet goes in water. You are starving this out. So if you're feeding it with food at the same time that you're starving it out, you're literally setting this up for failure. And so that's a very different approach. It has amino acids in it, it has all your basic aminos. Um, the elemental diet was made for irritable bowel disease. And so it was to help people get calories in um, when they had trouble breaking down food and absorbing it. And so the elemental diet will get calories in and it will give people their basic aminos. However, it is not meant to be like most of these things, most diets, it is not meant to be a long-term, like stay on this forever. Um, and there are people that are candidates for each of them. So elemental, somebody might lose weight. And so if they're underweight already, they are not a candidate for that in my mind. I'm not gonna put them in a dangerous situation. Or if they have an eating disorder, I do not put them on elemental or they have some kind of body dysmorphia where I'm worried about that. Elemental is not something that is they're a good candidate for. So sometimes the candidacy for each therapy comes in. Um, for my patients, I do a pro con list for all three. Um, and so I'll say, okay, here's the pro, here's the con, here's the cost, um, here's the length of treatment anticipated, What's the best treatment that you believe for yourself? Because this is where I like to take my ego out. Um, really always in medicine, I think we should have no ego um, and it's about the patient. And so I want them to have an educated 
an empowered decision. And it may or may not work. Any of them, honestly, may or may not work, but they get to try what they feel is best for them first. And that's up to them. That's not up to me. So that's another thing that, you know, not all of my colleagues feel the same about. Um, sometimes they'll push things. And sometimes people come in and they're like, I'm only doing this. And I'm like, okay. And then we go through it and it doesn't work. And I'll be like, okay, you're ready to try something else. And they're like, okay, thank you for letting me try. You know, and like, I think so much of it has been people have been disempowered by medicine that even just, even if it doesn't work, them being able to do what they felt was best for them first. And then being like, okay, all right, let's try the next one. Um, works. It's the best approach. Awesome. Thank you so much for breaking that down. Now, my next question, and you've talked about this before, uh, but is one treatment usually enough? It depends on numbers and it depends on what you define as one treatment. Um, so I was just talking to somebody about this the other day and they were like, well, one round of rifaximine. And so very rarely am I just using rifaximine number one. Um, however, it would look at the numbers. So if I'm looking at numbers and I want to reduce their numbers a lot, then I'm going to calculate. So a round of, let's say, antibiotics, if I'm anticipating it's going to drop their SIBO numbers, their gas numbers, um, 20 to 25 points per round, then obviously a number of 30 to start versus a number of 187 or 147 or 80, whatever it may be, those are different calculations. Um, it also makes a difference. I had somebody recently who was like, yeah, I didn't read the directions and I must've gotten confused. So I didn't take this three times a day and I didn't take the other antibiotic with it. So they had methane and hydrogen and we reran their numbers and it came down a tiny bit. It wasn't where it was supposed to be. And so they were like, yeah, I, I own that. I messed this up. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, obviously we're changing our calculations and we're changing our projections in real time. And some people, the therapy just won't work for. So that's different for elemental. I usually start with two weeks period. Um, it, because it's the most effective, whether or not people like it or not, elemental is the most effective therapy for most people, unless they've been on FODMAP for years, um, then they can do two weeks and it'll, it'll drop most people down that have a level of 30 or 40 or 50 or 80 or 120. I've had somebody, like I said, up, I think that person was like in the hundred and eighties and it dropped her in two weeks, um, down to, you know, less than 12. So yeah, it's, it's a little bit more of a slam dunk out of the therapies where the other ones I'm kind of calculating that 20 to 25 point drop, which is, which is why testing is so important. Yeah. Right. Awesome. That is exactly what I was hoping to cover. So now we've gone through this, let's say their SIBO is at zero. Finally, we've had some people who've had it for 20 years who finally get the first zero of their life. They're super excited. What do we do next? Once we know we've killed it off, we have to be able to go in and heal the gut. And so when we're looking at, um, looking at, you know, intestinal permeability, which means that the intestinal cells get really inflamed and the nerves get damaged. And then there's malabsorptive issues for a lot of these people. We have to go back in and make sure that that is addressed. And so part of that is, okay, we know that they're ready to start. We do, um, I call it SIBO phase two, say SIBO phase one is treatment. SIBO phase two is healing and rebuilding. And so this is SIBO phase two, where they start a very specific diet, which we're going to talk more about. Um, and it's a very simple diet. It's very, 
you know, for some people, it's a little bit harder because they're starting so um, minimally and with foods that are not going to feed any bacteria because ultimately there's, there's going to be good and bad bacteria in there. Um, but for the SIBO component or for the intestinal permeability component, I'm sorry, um, we need to give the gut some rest. And so the point is to give it some rest and almost do a little bit of a challenge as they go. So they know what's irritating their belly. Like it might be some food sensitivities at that point. And elimination challenge is the gold standard for food sensitivities. Um, so it's more of a gut rest, slowly rebuilding, introducing foods that are easily digestible, that have lower amounts of fiber in the beginning, because that's much harder. Um, and then we come in with supplementation to augment that. Um, and I'm using specifically supplements that are targeting nerve regeneration, regenerating um, their intestinal cells, because we need to turn those over healthier and faster. Um, and then um, also making sure that their intestines are moving along. Um, so we need prokinetics in there. And those are my main treatment approaches. And that can take anywhere from like three to six months. And some people are very unrealistic about that, where maybe they just haven't been, it hasn't been explained to them where they're like, oh, you know, I, I didn't realize that there was a phase two. And I feel like this is the part that's usually missing from most people's SIBO plans, especially when people buy like the pre-made packages online. And they're like, I'm going to do these herbs for six months and then it's over and they never got to heal. So, you know, if you make a healthy gut, um, then your mast cells in the area will develop healthier, which is a whole other topic. Um, but, you know, again, if you don't take care of that underlying foundational step, you're not gonna get rid of the other things. I love that you talk about that. And you developed a six step protocol for this. And this is actually like, once we kind of had been working together, you came to me and asked me to make a, a, an, an elaborate plan. You had the handouts, but people needed a little bit more. And I am going to go into this in another episode, but you know, it is very strategic and Dr. Geyer is very good at what she does. As you have been able to hear, you know, she's very well-versed and she's always learning, but yeah, there, you know, and this is where I come in because I love food and food is very healing and I love for it to taste good. Yeah. I think so first I can't, take credit for the phase two SIBO um, diet. I have to um, call attention to that. There are a lot of brilliant doctors and a lot of my mentors um, that have taught me SIBO and that are all having a conversation about the most effective SIBO diets, um, you know, and whether or not that's an SCD, a variation of SCD. Um, and, you know, some are using more of the FODMAP, which I, I don't use as much of. Um, so these diets existed uh, what I found most important when I approached you is that I had been doing this for a long time um, for our listeners that don't know how this kind of developed is that I had been doing this for quite a long time and had been figuring out what was working, what wasn't. And the big issue I have is a healthy relationship with food. There are a lot of people that don't have a healthy relationship with food. And if their gut has hurt for a really long time, they're afraid of food. And so it's hard, even when I give them permission to eat things where they're like, um, but really I can eat that. And I'm like, please eat. I need you to eat. This is really important. And so it's almost on a psychological basis where I want them to experience food. And that's where you came in, where they can have good recipes and they can have good tasting things as well. And they're almost retraining their brain to have a healthier relationship with those foods. So yes, they're specifically, um, you know, in phases of reintroduction and um, they're 
kind of the most easily digestible first and adding in and adding in and adding in. However, they're also reframing and re like establishing establishing this healthy relationship with food. And so that's what you've really done. And I think that that's really, really important, like that people start to integrate is I want somebody to have their life back. And I say that all the time and people just look at me and they're like, wait a minute, so I can cure this and move on with my life. And I think that that's where some of my zebra groups that I've been in before, um, I'm like, wow, okay. Like, of course, the people that are really sick and aren't making any headway are going to speak the loudest and the most often. <laughs> and that's really unfortunate because people do get their lives back. So that's, but part of that is treating it appropriately, reintroducing appropriately, healing the gut, the gut, healing the nerves, and also healing their psychological relationship with food so they don't fear it. Yes. I'm so excited. I'm so glad that you got to share all of this information. It's so helpful and good. Is there anything else that you want our listeners to kind of walk away with? I feel like that was like the perfect ending, but if there's anything else. (laughs) I I think that's, that's mostly it. Um, What I would say is for anyone who one is paying a boatload of money. I've seen a lot of SIBO programs more recently. So this is um, something I want to kind of call out. And a lot of, you know, these more complex chronic disease programs um, where they were really, really expensive and people are spending a fortune. Like somebody told me recently that they've spent like $300,000 in the last three years before they saw me. And I was so angry for them. And I was so sad um, that I just really kind of need to get on my pedestal here and say like, Yes, good medicine. Sometimes people are making an investment up front. Yes, it might be cash pay. Like I don't accept insurance in my practice. Um, I am not an insurance-based practice, even though I'll order lab store insurance if I can, and I'll try and work all of those loopholes. Um, but I don't do that so that I can spend quality time with them. However, I do things the way that I do them so that people get better faster. And so I'm like, you're going to make this investment upfront and I should see results within this amount of time. And if people, if they're seeing doctors and they're really wishy-washy or they don't seem to know what they're talking about, um, or sometimes they're trying to get things covered by insurance, or sometimes they've spent a boatload of money with somebody who has kind of drug them through lots and lots and lots and lots of functional testing, which may be appropriate and may not have, um, then they should start looking at other places because really integrative medicine and functional medicine is results-based medicine. And yes, it's root cause medicine, um, but results-based, like people should be seeing results. And so if they're not, look again, and don't be afraid to leave where you're at um, or have a conversation with the doctor and make sure you understand what they are saying and thinking and trying to do. Um, Or if they're, I talk to smarter doctors than myself all the time. I'm always consulting um, because ego has no place in medicine. So if they're not seeing the results, um, then maybe they should look somewhere else or at least make sure that they are on the right track with where they're at. Thank you so much. I absolutely love that. And again, um, I'm so grateful that you came on the podcast. It's so good to talk with you again and to work together again and to just shout this from the rooftops for everybody. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. If you found this episode helpful, would you do me a favor and help others find it by leaving a review, sharing a screenshot on social media, or sharing the link with a friend? 
By you sharing what you've learned, others are able to find this podcast and join our community. Be sure to check out my website, www.roadtolivingwhole.com for over 160 delicious recipes, a variety of meal plans, and a blog packed full of even more healthy living tips. If you'd like to learn more about how to work with me as your coach, you can schedule a free consult through www.roadtolivingwhole.com backslash health dash coaching backslash. Until next time, friend. Bye.